Acts chapter 14 this Lord's Day. Acts chapter 14. We continue in this section reading concerning the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul as he goes forth proclaiming the gospel to various people, nations, tribes, and tongues. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time, therefore, abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided and part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and unto the region that lieth round about. And there they preached the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius. But because, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. Which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out and saying sirs why do ye these things we also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these things scarce restrained they, the people, that they had not done sacrifice unto them. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must 
through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And after they had passed throughout Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down into Atalia and then sailed to Antioch from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there, that abode long, and there they abode long time with the disciples. For the past few weeks we have been studying the matter of infant baptism. We've been seeking to understand more clearly why we baptize our children, why we not only baptize adults, but why we include children in baptizing them. Someone may ask, why are we spending so much time on this particular topic? And I want to uh, just say a couple things in relationship to that before we get into the sermon itself, I would suggest that we do so, and we are doing so, for three reasons. First of all, we're doing so for the sake of our Baptist brethren, with whom we disagree on this issue. Baptists believing that only adults ought to be baptized. We, Presbyterians, believe that infants ought also to be baptized. But because we love our brethren, we want to be one with them. But we realize we can't be one unless we agree in the truth. That's the only foundation for which we can have union, is in the truth. We can't simply come together and let everybody just believe whatever you want to believe. There must be a foundation, an agreement, if we are to be truly united together. So that's the first reason. We do want to see uh, unity amongst the brethren, those who profess Jesus Christ. A second reason is because... We want to understand better the blessings, the promises that are made not only to us who believe, but to our children who cannot yet believe. We want to understand how our children come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, on what basis they also can be told to cling to the promises that God makes. It is on the basis of the covenant of grace, which God makes not only with us, who believe and trust in Christ, but with our children. Those same promises are made to them. And so we want to better understand, for the sake of ourselves and our children, how God has ministered his salvation to his people. And then finally, we want to study the subject for the glory of God, chiefly, because we want to be an honor. We want to do that which is pleasing to the Lord. We want to uphold that which is truthful and according to God's revealed will in his word. We don't want to believe things that are contrary to the will of God. We want to believe that which is consistent and agreeable to the will of God because that is what glorifies God when we believe what he teaches, not what simply comes from our own mind. It's promoted by uh, various opinions. Everybody has an opinion. If that's the basis upon which we judge truth, it's the opinion of everybody, then there really is no truth because everybody believes something different. You see, there must be an ultimate authority 
And God has given to us in his word that which is the ultimate authority. So we judge all of our thoughts, that which we teach and believe and practice according to the word of God. So these are the reasons that we have been studying this issue of infant baptism. <clears throat> Our Baptist brethren deny that circumcision in the Old Testament has anything directly to do with baptism in the New Testament. For they believe that circumcision in the Old Testament was just an outward national sign for the Israelites or a mere external sign of temporal blessings. But dear ones, as we shall see, this is not the case at all. Circumcision was indeed an outward sign. But like baptism, it was an outward sign that represented spiritual blessings of the gospel. And like baptism, circumcision was intensely personal and individualistic to each one who received it. It said something from God to man to those who received this particular sign. It was not merely a national sign to mark Israel out as a nation separate from the other nations of the world, but it said something to each person and to all of the Israelites. It said something particularly to them and to their children. Dear ones, if it can be demonstrated that circumcision represented the spiritual promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ and as such was applied to infant children in the Old Testament as well as to, to those converts who came in as adults, then all we need to demonstrate is that baptism in the New Testament has replaced circumcision. For no one disputes that New Testament baptism represents the spiritual promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no dispute about that. Everyone is in agreement that baptism represents those spiritual promises made to us in Jesus Christ. But if we can ascertain and determine that Old Testament circumcision represents the same promises, then all we need to, to be able to learn from the New Testament is that baptism as an outward sign of this covenant of grace has replaced circumcision. I call your attention to two questions which we shall consider this Lord's Day and the next Lord's Day. First question which we'll consider this Lord's Day is this. What is the meaning of circumcision? And the next Lord's Day what we shall consider is what is the relationship between circumcision and baptism. In order to answer the question, <clears throat> what is the meaning of circumcision, I would have you take your Bibles if you would follow along and turn with me to Romans chapter 4, verse 11. I'll read that verse and then we're going to kind of build up uh, from the context around it so that we have a proper understanding of this verse. But the verse, Romans 4.11, says this. And he, 
This is speaking of Abraham. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. The letter to the Romans that we have just read from was penned by the Apostle Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in about 58-59 AD. Perhaps the most significant reason for Paul sending this letter to the church in Rome was to refute the Jewish heresy that salvation to Jews and to Gentiles comes by circumcision and by obedience to the commandments of God, rather than by trusting alone in Jesus Christ. In the first three chapters of the letter to the Romans, Paul proves that all men, both Jews and Gentiles, are unrighteous before God and have sinned against God's holy law. Without exception, every one of us, except the Lord Jesus Christ, who was perfect, who was holy, every other man has sinned against the Lord God whether young or whether old. Therefore, everyone stands guilty, Paul argues. Everyone stands guilty before God and stands condemned for that guilt before the infinite bar of God's justice. Furthermore, God, speaking through the Apostle Paul, clearly declares in Romans chapter 3 that there is nothing that sinners can do Sinners like you and me, there is nothing that we ourselves can do to rescue ourselves by our own efforts, by our own works, out of this seemingly hopeless situation. In Romans chapter 3, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, verse 9 and following. What then? Are we better than they? Paul is asking the question. Are we Jews better than the Gentiles? No. In no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable, for there is none that doeth good. No, not one. And so, Paul comes to verse 19 of the same chapter, and this is his conclusion. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped in all the world, not just some people within the world, that all the world may become guilty before God. Everyone. If I might use an illustration, dear ones, we are all drowning in the same sea of sin. And unless one who is not drowning in that same sea of sin comes from without that sea of sin to rescue us out of that sea of sin, we will perish eternally, everlastingly, in that sea of sin. We'll perish in hell. Our only hope of rescue... And salvation must come from Jesus Christ. 
who is absolutely righteous and who has been appointed by God the Father to suffer the penalty for man's sin, that those who trust in him alone may be saved, might be forgiven of all of their sin, and might be declared righteous or accounted righteous for Christ's sake. You see, Paul continues in Romans 3:21 and 22 by, by, by saying this, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Here Paul says, There is a righteousness of God that one can have apart from perfectly himself keeping the law of God. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, this is testified, God says, even in the Old Testament, by the law and the prophets. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Here is the righteousness, Paul says, that one can have, and the only righteousness which we can have because we are sinners. It is a righteousness which we receive by faith trusting Jesus Christ, who perfectly kept the law of God for all of those who had put their faith and trust in him. They can be accounted by God the Father as righteous in his sight. Not for what they have done, but for what Christ has done on their behalf. In chapter 4 of Romans, Paul brings forth two witnesses from the Old Testament to testify of the blessedness of God's forgiveness and righteousness, which are received by faith alone. He brings forth Abraham and David. Abraham is particularly an important witness inasmuch as he is the father of the Jews. That is, as to the flesh, he is the father of the Jews, according to Romans 4.1. His testimony, therefore, would carry a lot of weight with the Jews. The Jews sought to be righteous before God by means of their keeping the law of God. That is, by their own acts and efforts of righteousness. For example, they believed that if they were circumcised, which was ordained by God in the Old Testament, that was an act of righteousness of which God would look upon and on that basis receive them into his sight. That he would save them because they were circumcised. And all the other things that they did within their life in in seeming obedience to God's commands, they thought that these would, in effect, cancel out all of the sins which they had committed. Doesn't that sound familiar? That's a very popular teaching today, that our good deeds will, in fact, cancel out our bad deeds. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's the only problem. God says that we are accountable before him on the basis of the sins we have committed and there is no forgiveness, there is no canceling out of those sins, there is no blotting out of those sins apart from faith in Jesus Christ. All of our works, no matter how long we lived, could not cancel out and blot out our sins that we have committed against God. Only faith in Christ can bring that forgiveness. The Jews of Paul's Paul's time believed that if one were not circumcised according to the law of Moses, one could not receive God's forgiveness and God's righteousness. Therefore, the Jews taught that the only hope for Gentiles 
To be saved was to become, in effect, Jewish converts, to be circumcised and to keep all of the law of God. You see, the problem with this view of salvation is that it proceeds from the delusion, as we have said, that we can earn God's favor. It proceeds from the delusion and from the deception of our own mind that we can cancel out our own sin. But but, uh, forgiveness, dear ones, and the righteousness of God never, ever came by means of circumcision. Even in the Old Testament, as in the New, forgiveness of God and the righteousness of God always came from trusting in Jesus Christ who was to come. And I submit to you that that promise is what is presented to us in circumcision. That promise that it is Jesus Christ. You see, what is so ironic is is the very promise that's contained, the very promise that is signified, represented, and sealed in circumcision was that they couldn't save themselves, but that it was only Christ who would come and would be cut off in death and shed His blood in his being cut off in death, I would bring salvation. They were blind. So many of the Jews were blind. Not all, certainly, but so many were blind to what God truly taught in this sign and seal of circumcision. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul looks to Abraham, as we said, as his star witness to demonstrate that it is not by means of circumcision that we receive the forgiveness of God and the righteousness of God, but it is rather by faith. Because in Abraham's case, he was brought into the covenant as an adult. And so, therefore, he first believed and then was circumcised. He was first forgiven his sins, and then was circumcised. He was first accounted righteous through the righteousness of God, and then he was circumcised. And so he is the the key witness to which the Apostle Paul will appeal Interestingly, the Apostle Paul calls this covenant that God made with Abraham and with Abraham's children and stamped with God's divine approval by the sign and seal of circumcision, Paul calls this a Christian covenant in the New Testament. He doesn't call it a carnal covenant, a fleshly covenant. He doesn't call it a national covenant. He calls it a Christian covenant. In Galatians chapter 3. And so therefore the promises contained in a Christian covenant, one would think would be gospel promises, would be spiritual promises, which would relate and promise salvation to those 
who received the sign and seal of that covenant, namely circumcision. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, speaking of this covenant that God made with Abraham and with his children, it says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Blessed spiritually. The gospel was preached to Abraham in this covenant. It wasn't the law that was preached. It says here the gospel, the promises of salvation were preached to Abraham in the covenant that God made with him and in the covenant which was sealed with circumcision. Furthermore, in the same chapter, note in verses 16 and 17, Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, how Paul describes this covenant that God made with Abraham. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Now that's certainly a spiritual promise. Christ is ultimately who is looked upon as the seed of Abraham in whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. All of the families of the earth will be blessed. Verse 17 says, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ. Note those two words, in Christ. This covenant with Abraham was confirmed before of God. How was it confirmed? By God's making a promise, but it was certainly confirmed also by the seal of circumcision. But it was confirmed of God in Christ. It was a Christian covenant if it was confirmed of God in Christ. Therefore, it promised gospel spiritual promises and blessings. Thus, Abraham, dear ones, was not justified by circumcision as the Jews thought, but by faith alone in Christ who was to come. You see, this is not only a problem which the Jews had in Paul's time, but it is the prevailing theme we find in the Church of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church today, and is the prevailing theme in all false religion, that we can save ourselves, that we can add to the salvation which God has provided. We can make ourselves acceptable before God. The promises of salvation are purchased for us and freely bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ. It's not that we don't, after being saved, after being forgiven, after receiving the righteousness of of Christ, it's not that we go on and live however we want to live. That's not the issue. We certainly, if we have been genuinely saved, will seek and will desire and want to obey the Lord, not in order to be righteous before Him, but because we love Him, because of our gratitude and thankfulness and all that He has done for us. But all false religion teaches that we can earn our way to heaven. We can work our way to heaven. The Bible teaches no way. It cannot happen. And one who thinks that they can will never appear in heaven. 
It is only through the righteousness of Christ that any of us can be saved. Well, let's consider more closely Romans 4.11 now. Paul calls circumcision both a sign and a seal. Look with me. Romans 4.11 And he that is Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised. It is called a sign and a seal. We need to understand before we can clearly move on to, uh, to be able to understand what circumcision is, what a sign and a seal, in fact, are. How is circumcision a sign, first of all? An outward sign, when that particular term is used, an outward sign points to the reality which it represents. When you're driving along the highway and out in the middle of nowhere you find yourself, no town, nothing, but you see this sign along the, the side of the road and it says, McDonald's restaurant, five miles. Well, you don't pull underneath that sign and order a Big Mac, do you? No, you understand that sign is pointing you to the reality which is down the road somewhere. Similarly, circumcision was an outward sign given by God to Abraham and to Israel which pointed to all of the blessings of God's salvation in Christ which were made to Abraham and Israel in this covenant of grace. Likewise, just as a bride, when looking at her wedding ring on her hand, remembers the promises made to her by her husband in the covenant of matrimony, so likewise Abraham and Israel, when looking at circumcision, were to remember the promises made to them by their God in the covenant of grace. Circumcision was a sign. Well, secondly, how was circumcision a seal? Well, an outward seal is a visible object that gives the parties involved in a covenant or a contract confidence that the promises made will, in fact, be fulfilled. Don't you think a contract that is ratified by signatures at the bottom of the page by the parties that are involved in this covenant or contract is more likely to build confidence than a contract that has no signatures? That's the purpose of a seal. So when it speaks of circumcision being a seal, it's God's autograph, his signature, that the promises made in the covenant of grace to Abraham and Israel, that those promises are real. They're authentic. Covenants in the ancient world were often ratified or given the stamp of approval by the parties involved by the shedding of the blood of animals. We see in Genesis chapter 15, verse 9 and following, how 
how God told Abraham to take some animals and to split them in two, cut them in two, and then he would covenant with Abraham. And God appeared in this, in this uh, burning uh, light and walked between or passed between uh, these parts, saying that he himself, the sovereign God, would freely bestow in his grace and his mercy all of these promises and blessings upon Abraham and upon those within the covenant. We see also in Exodus 24.8 as well that the covenant that Moses, that God made with Israel through Moses is ratified by the shedding of blood sprinkling the blood upon the book of the covenant, it says there. We find in Jeremiah 34, verses 18 and 19, there again of a covenant that was made by the people of Israel to release their, their servants and their slaves at the appointed time that God had, uh, uh, had noted in his law. They had not done so, and so they made a covenant that they would do so. And how did they ratify and seal, in effect, put their signature to this covenant? Well, again, they, they took animals, they split them in two, and the blood was shed in order to ratify those covenants. In effect, saying, if I don't fulfill the terms of this covenant, let the same thing happen to me. You know, uh, let me be cut. Let me be slashed. Let me shed my blood. And so this was a very graphic way of ratifying a covenant. I dare say that probably marriage covenants would be viewed in a little more serious light if they took animals and split them in two and shed blood and the parties walked in the midst of those animals. There would be a little more solemnity to the promises made in the matrimonial covenant. In fact, a common expression in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament for making a covenant is literally, in the Hebrew language, to cut a covenant. To cut a covenant. And it's from the idea of cutting an animal and shedding its blood so as to ratify the covenant that's been made. We see that term used in Genesis 15:18 with regard to the covenant God made with Abraham, Exodus 24:8 with regard to the covenant God made with Israel. And in Jeremiah 31, 31 and 32, with regard to the new covenant that God would make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah to cut a covenant. Now, the question needs to be asked, why did God enter into this covenant of grace with Abraham and with his infant children by attaching his signature, as it were, with the seal of circumcision? Why did God do that? Well, certainly he didn't do so because he was afraid that he would not keep his own word. For God cannot lie, the Bible teaches us, as in Titus 1-2. It is impossible for God to lie. Unlike man, God is not a man that he should lie. And so, it wasn't for God's benefit that God gave to Abraham and to Abraham's children this covenant sign and seal of circumcision. It was rather, dear ones, for Abraham's benefit 
it was for Israel's benefit so that they might grow in their faith in God's promises, that their confidence might be built just as a contract that has the signatures at the bottom of the page instills more confidence in the things that are stated within that contract so that God's people might have confidence in the promises that were made in this covenant of grace from God. It was for their benefit. These promises in this covenant which call them individually and personally to reach out with a hand of faith, an empty hand of faith, and to receive merely from God the blessings which were offered, freely offered to them in this covenant of grace. And unlike the cutting of animals which might be used to uh, sign or ratify a covenant and after which those bloody parts of the animal would be buried or burned, this sign of the covenant, this seal of the covenant of circumcision could not be burned or buried. It was in their flesh for them to perpetually remember God's promises to them that he had made to them. And it was there, dear ones, in order to point them to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to Daniel 9.26 would come and fulfill this covenant by himself being cut off. The same word that's used to, to cut a covenant, to be cut off as our substitute, as our mediator, that we might know and enjoy the promises of salvation. So he was cut off. His blood was shed. That is what circumcision pointed to. That's what it represented. Now I would have you see, dear ones, as we proceed quickly through the sermon here, that the sign and seal of circumcision represented and ratified not primarily national or temporal earthly blessings. I've said, I've said that in, uh, in the sermon. We've said it in the sermons past, but I want to very clearly illustrate that and, and demonstrate that right now. But rather, the sign and seal of circumcision ratified and uh, represented and ratified primarily gracious spiritual blessings. It is not true, as our Baptist brethren would have us to believe, that circumcision was a mere national sign for the Israelite nation or a mere outward sign of temporal blessings. That is not true. That is not the case. It can be demonstrated, as I hope to show you right now. Circumcision, like baptism, was a sign and seal primarily of the promises of salvation through Jesus Christ. First of all, then, circumcision was not a mere national sign for the Israelite nation. Why is that not true? For it was first given not to Israel as a nation, but was first given to Abraham and to his children in Genesis 17. It was given before Israel ever was constituted 
as a nation at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. Although given to Israel as a nation at Mount Sinai to be a matrimonial sign and seal of her marriage, her union to the Lord, it also pointed each and every individual Israelite to the promises of regeneration and sanctification, forgiveness and righteousness through Jesus Christ. For if it was a mere national sign without personal, individual significance, why were Israelites personally and individually called to turn to the Lord that they might be circumcised in their hearts? Why were they called individually to turn to the Lord that they might be circumcised internally if it was merely a national mark upon them to separate them from all the nations of the world. They, dear ones, were appealed to person by person, individual by individual, to be circumcised in the heart. That is, when this appeal was made to them by God and by the prophets, they were to have the corruption and the guilt of sin cut away, circumcised from their heart by the one who was to come and to be cut off and circumcised in his death for them and on their behalf. In Deuteronomy 10.16, we see very clear appeal to the Israelites to be circumcised in the heart individually to be circumcised in the heart Jeremiah 4.4 4, the same appeal is individually and personally made to the Israelites to be circumcised in the heart and even in the New Testament in Romans chapter 2 verses 28 and 29 the Apostle Paul says for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. You see, that is what the outward circumcision was to point each Israelite to, the inward circumcision, which only God can accomplish in cutting away the corruption and the guilt of sin through the work of Jesus Christ. but there's a second objection as we mentioned circumcision is said to have been an outward sign of temporal blessings I want to demonstrate that it was not a mere outward sign of temporal blessings as our Baptist brethren teach to the contrary it was a sign and seal primarily of spiritual blessings just like that of baptism and I want to give to you at this point, <clears throat> seven spiritual blessings that are specifically, I believe, mentioned. Seven spiritual promises, seven spiritual blessings that are indicated by circumcision. First of all, from our text, in Romans 4.11, circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness that comes from God by faith. <clears throat> Listen to what Paul says 
and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe. That is, that he might be the father not only of Jews, but that he might be the father of Gentiles as well. Might be the father of all those, whether Jew or Gentile, who do trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul declares that circumcision in the life of Abraham represented and ratified the promise of justification by faith alone. Clearly, a spiritual rather than a temporal blessing. That is not a material, earthly blessing, but rather a spiritual, eternal blessing to be justified by faith alone. Our Baptist brethren call our attention to the fact that infant children are not even mentioned in this verse, but rather only believing Abraham is mentioned, which is true. They are not mentioned. Thus it is alleged by our Baptist brethren that to Abraham alone was circumcision a sign and a seal of the promise of justification, but not to his infant children. However, I would submit that if circumcision represented and ratified to Abraham the promise of justification by faith alone, it most certainly signified and sealed the... No distinction is made in Genesis chapter 17. That same covenant of grace is made with Abraham as with his children, and they both receive the same sign and seal of circumcision. The reason Abraham was selected by Paul as an example, rather than Isaac, for example, Abraham's son, Isaac, who was circumcised as an infant, was that Abraham's case proves most clearly to the Jews that one is not justified by circumcision, but by faith alone. Because Abraham came into the covenant as adult, first believed coming from outside the covenant, first believed and then was circumcised. Whereas his son, to whom God made the same promises, was already born into the covenant through believing Abraham and therefore was first circumcised and then believed. If Isaac had been used by Paul here, the Jews would likely have concluded that Isaac was justified not by faith alone, but by his circumcision, received as an infant. Of course, such was not actually the case, for Isaac was justified by faith alone, even though he first received circumcision, because circumcision pointed to him to the promises made of the spiritual blessing of justification by faith alone. Abraham's case, however, left no room for the Jews to dispute, for Abraham was circumcised after he believed. But observe this, dear ones. There is no difference in meaning between the circumcision of Abraham and the circumcision of Isaac. No difference in meaning. It means the same thing. The promises of the covenant are made to both. There's only a difference in circumstances. Abraham could not be circumcised as an infant, for he came into the covenant as an adult. But Isaac, on the other hand, was born into the covenant and received circumcision and then believed and trusted in the promises made in the covenant of grace. Not a difference of meaning, 
the difference in circumstances. <clears throat> Thus, what circumcision meant to Abraham, dear ones, it also meant to Isaac. The covenant of grace promises justification to all who are in it, whether adults or children. But those promises made in the covenant of grace, dear ones, are only realized by those who are irresistibly called by God into himself and given a new heart by the Holy Spirit of God. Only they become the actual recipients. They actually realize the promises made in the covenant. They actually participate and partake of those inward spiritual blessings that are promised in the covenant through faith and through regeneration through being born again by the Spirit of God. In Romans chapter 9, to illustrate the fact that this is the case, in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul is responding to an objection that the promises that were made by God were not really realized by Israel since so many of them have turned their backs upon the promises. Since so many have not really seen fulfilled the promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but have walked contrary to Jesus Christ. The promises are, are basically made null and void. They're, they've not been effective. What's going on? At least this is one of the objections which Paul is now responding to in Romans chapter 9. Has God failed in some way? Has his promise failed? Has, has uh, his work of grace failed? Absolutely not. For Paul says in Romans 9, 6, not as though the word of God has taken an effect. God's word has been effectual. It's taken its appointed effect, Paul says. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. An interesting statement. They are not all Jews who claim to be Jews. In other words, they are not all truly Jews. We just read in Romans 2, 28, 29, what is a true Jew? Not one who is just circumcised outwardly, but one who is circumcised inwardly. It's a true Jew. It's a spiritual Jew. So here, God says, through the Apostle Paul, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel, that descend naturally from Israel. God, in making the promises to Abraham and to all Israel, causes his Holy Spirit to effectually work in the lives of certain ones within Israel so that they come to a saving knowledge. They are born again. They are justified. They are sanctified by God. God applies these promises to particular seed within all of those who are made the promises. For example, I can, within this particular group, make a promise that... Uh, uh, I, I make the promise that... Uh, you're, you are invited to come to my house for, for dinner after the service. And I will feed you. 
But I make that promise, but what if some say, I don't want to go over to his house? Was the promise not yet made? But it's only effectual in the lives of those who actually come and I feed. Well, the promise is made to Abraham and to all his descendants, to all his seed, but it is made effectual in the lives of those within whom God works his work of grace by creating a new life, creating faith, declaring them righteous. Paul says, and as he continues in Romans 9, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. That is, all children of promise, all true spiritual children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So amongst all of the children of the flesh, God has his particular children that will receive. Not only the promises be made to, but they will receive the promises. You see the difference here between those to whom the promises are made and those who actually receive the promises. That is what's going on in this particular case. And it's interesting, knowing that these are spiritual promises that Paul is speaking of in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8 and following. These are spiritual promises. <clears throat> and we see in the next few verses that these, these promises were made, we assume that both Esau and Jacob were circumcised, um, just like Ishmael and Isaac were circumcised. But God revealed to Rebekah, the mother of Esau and Jacob, that Jacob would be the seed who would rec actually receive the promise. But we again assume that both of these particular individuals as infants were circumcised. The promises, therefore, were made to both of them, the promises were only realized in one of them, namely Jacob. These weren't temporal promises. These were spiritual promises made in circumcision. A second spiritual blessing, as we have indicated, and I won't spend any time on this, is the circumcision of the heart. A second spiritual blessing. Circumcision of the heart. Not only the first blessing, as we mentioned, uh, the blessing of the righteousness received by faith, but now the circumcision of the heart, which we have seen in Deuteronomy 10.16, Jeremiah 4.4, 4, Romans 2.28-29. This is the removal and the cleansing of sin through the death of Christ. And it points to this death of Christ, his cutting off in, in Colossians 2.11. If you look there, it is a circumcision... Paul says that it's not made with hands, but is accomplished by the death of Jesus Christ. And so, circumcision of the heart is a second spiritual blessing. A third spiritual blessing is a seed that was promised to Abraham. In Genesis 17:2, the Lord says that He will He will make Abraham fruitful and multiply his seed. Although the Lord did give to Abraham a physical seed, 
This promise, I submit to you, was fully realized in Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, and realized in all of those who are in Christ, the seed of Abraham, according to God's own word. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says that the seed in whom all the families and the nations of the world will be blessed is Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. And he says that all of those who are in Christ receive our heirs to the blessings made to Abraham in Galatians 3.29. And so, again, even though this appears to be a temporal blessing, it is actually a spiritual blessing. It's merely disguised in the outward robes and garments of the temporal blessing. That which is primarily intended is that which is spiritual. Another blessing promised to Abraham, fourthly, are many nations were promised to Abraham in the covenant of grace. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 4, 5, and 6, many nations would come from him. And that actually occurred. Physical nations did come from Abraham. The Arabs through uh, Ishmael. The six sons through Keturah formed many Arab tribes. The Jews through Isaac and Jacob. The Edomites through Esau. There were many nations that came forth from, from Abraham. However, listen closely, the spiritual significance of this promise was fully realized in the many Gentile nations that would be saved through Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, according to Romans chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, that is Jews, but to that which is of the faith of Abraham, that is Gentiles, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. And so you see, dear ones, this temporal blessing actually pointed to an even greater spiritual blessing, namely the salvation of the Gentiles of which we ourselves have become partakers. So we are the fulfillment of the many nations that would come to Abraham in the true and spiritual sense. Fifthly, kings shall come from Abraham, according to Genesis 17.6. Certainly kings of Israel and Judah did issue from Abraham. But again, the spiritual fulfillment to which these kings pointed was realized in Christ, who was to reign forever from the throne of David, according to Luke 1, verses 32 and 33. And who was to reign as the prince of the kings of the earth, according to Revelation 1, 5. See, another spiritual blessing is cloaked in the outer garment of a temporal blessing. Sixthly, we find that Abraham has promised that God would be his God and he and his children would be his people in Genesis 17, 7. But this is the same blessing that is promised to the children of Israel in the Mosaic Covenant, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 10 through 15. And it is the same spiritual blessing that is promised in the New Covenant. The New Covenant ratified in the blood of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, I will be a God to them and they will be my people. This simply speaks of the spiritual blessing of union and communion with Jesus Christ. 
That, dear ones, is the end and the goal to which our salvation points. Not that we simply have forgiveness of sin. Not that we simply have eternal life. But that we might be able thereby to enjoy God forever. And that He might be able to delight and enjoy us. See, that's to which, that goal to which our, our salvation points. Union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Finally, a land is promised to Abraham and to a seed in Genesis 17:8. Of what was Canaan a type and a picture? It was a type and picture of heaven itself, wherein is our everlasting city, the New Jerusalem, according to Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. This temporal blessing was really a spiritual blessing again in disguise. There we see in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, that it says that Abraham and his seed were not really looking ultimately for a physical, material plot of land, geography, but what they were ultimately looking for was a city whose maker is God, a city which cannot pass away in heaven itself. So this particular temporal blessing points to the eternal, everlasting blessing, blessing of heaven. These, I submit to you, dear ones, are the very blessings. These spiritual blessings are that to which circumcision points in the Old Testament. Spiritual blessing. These are the blessings that were promised not only to Abraham, but also to Abraham's children and realized and those whom God actually circumcised in heart and brought to faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, if gospel promises were represented and confirmed in circumcision, and drawing to a close here, if gospel promises were represented and confirmed in circumcision, not only to adults who could believe, but also to infants who could not yet believe, and exercise conscious faith in God, as we have seen, how are infants now who cannot yet exercise faith under the new covenant unfit for baptism, which represents and ratifies the same gospel promises, but speak of a Savior who is not to come, but one who has already come. The whole argument of our Baptist brethren in denying baptism to infants is that there is no real identity between circumcision and baptism. Thus, we are told that we cannot conclude that just because infants receive the sign of God's covenant in the Old Testament, they receive circumcision, that they should receive the sign of God's covenant in the New Testament, namely baptism. But dear ones, all of the spiritual blessings promised in the covenant of grace made to Abraham, made to Israel, are realized and fulfilled in the new covenant of grace through Christ's death and resurrection and are sealed and ratified in the Old Testament by circumcision and are sealed and ratified in the New Testament by baptism. It's just that the promises and blessings of the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant are looking forward to the realization of those blessings in the New Covenant. We're looking back to the realization of those blessings. These are the very blessings of circumcision 
and baptism both represent and confirm. Thus, there is no essential discontinuity in the meaning between circumcision and baptism, but rather an essential continuity in meaning between both circumcision and baptism. Both circumcision and baptism look to Christ. Both circumcision and uh, baptism, dear ones, give God's signature and, uh, and, uh, to his promises, his signature to his promises of regeneration, of union and communion with Christ, of justification, sanctification, and eternal life. Beloved, there is only one covenant of grace in which the Lord has promised salvation for sinners. And you who are here today, all of you will be related to that covenant of grace in one of three ways. You may have no relationship to the covenant of grace at all. You're entirely outside the covenant of grace. That's one possibility. You may have, secondly, merely an external relationship to the covenant, the one covenant of grace. That is, you have been baptized. You're a member externally of the church, the visible church. But that is all. That's as far as your relationship goes to the covenant of grace. Or thirdly, you may have both an external and, most importantly, an internal relationship to the covenant of grace because you have trusted in those promises and received those promises as your own. You have embraced them as your only hope of eternal salvation. You have embraced Jesus Christ. Dear ones, there is no Christ outside of the covenant of grace who can save. There is no salvation outside of the covenant of grace. I ask you today, and what are you trusting to secure eternal life for yourself? Are you trusting in your baptism? Are you trusting in your membership in this church? Are you trusting in your parents' faith? Are you trusting uh, in your own works of righteousness and in your own obedience? Or are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation. That is the only way we can be properly related to this covenant of grace and have it internally worked within our life. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee this day for the work of Thy Spirit which applies these promises to our lives freely, who effectually applies the call of God, who effectually works to create within us new life, to give to us faith, to believe and trust in Thee, who grants to us repentance unto life and even new obedience. For Father, none of these graces, none of these gifts could we have secured for ourselves. We would certainly have perished in that sea of sin and been sent eternally to to die in everlasting torment in hell if it were not for the fact that Jesus Christ has secured these blessings for us. And we pray our Father this day that Thou would give to us the grace in our own hearts as we 
do think as we consider upon these things. Cause us, O Lord, to renew our covenant with Thee. Cause us, our Father, to embrace Thee afresh and anew this day. Lord, we pray that Thou would would give to us, uh, Lord, great delight as we consider the blessings that are now made to us in our baptism, that we would not be so foolish as to turn our backs upon those blessings that are promised to us, but that, Father, we would would seek thy face, that we would seek, O Lord, our Savior, and put all of our confidence in him to forgive us and to grant to us his righteousness. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.